Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of 1 John. That's where we are today. We are summarizing the books of the Bible, book by book, and today we're in 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 is where we will start. It'll be good for you to have your Bible opened or maybe the Pew Bible open there so that you can flip along with me as we go through the entire book. We'll hit the highlights of 1 John today. And here's the key concept. We have new life in Christ. New life. Just like that song was t talking about finding that life that is redemption and renewal forever for sure. We used to be the prodigal, but no more. New life. While you're finding 1 John chapter 1, let me set the stage for you. These, this letter is written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John lived the longest of all the apostles. He, he uh, wrote this letter late in his life along with the next two short little letters that we'll look at in the next few weeks. Scholars tell us that uh, John wrote this letter in approximately A.D. 90. What that means is 25 years has transpired between where we were last week in 2 Peter and where we are today in 1 John. And John is writing this letter as an open letter, so to speak, to the churches of western Turkey. He doesn't have an, uh, an address per se written down, but to all of those in the region where he lives, because John at this point in his life was living in the city of Ephesus. And he writes to combat and to warn them against a threat. But this is not the threat of persecution. Even though persecution will be real in John's life, this is the threat of false teaching that he writes against. A specific false teaching. A false teaching that will later on in history have a label. And that label is Gnosticism. But it is not yet known by that name, but even though the label has not yet been applied in history, the foundational concepts of Gnosticism exist, and John speaks against them. The concepts are these. Gnostic thought had as its background the idea that physical things are inherently evil, but spiritual things are inherently good. Thus, they thought that the creator God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, must not be the supreme being in the universe. And they developed a theory of a being behind and above Yahweh who was the supreme being who had nothing to do with physical creation. And they also taught that God, of course, would never take the form of human flesh. And so they denied that Jesus was fully God and fully man in the miracle that Christians teach as the incarnation. The Gnostics taught that it just seemed like Jesus was a man. It just seemed like he had a body, but he, he really didn't. And John saw danger in these teachings, rightly so. First of all, danger about how would Jesus represent us on the cross if he was not one of us, and that's just one of many dangerous heretical points found in Gnosticism. And so he teaches against it. Listen to how he emphasizes the physicality of Jesus in the first four verses. Read along with me. John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us and that our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. There are two words in these first few verses that will carry us through the entire letter of the epistle of John, and that is, those are the words fellowship and joy. And by the word fellowship, John means a significant sharing, a deep-seated partnership, a side-by-side working together. And John says, in Christ you get to have that with God. You get to have fellowship with God. But you'll only find fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh. We have seen Him. We have heard Him. We have touched Him. And in this fellowship, he says, you can find joy. Not a giddy, ecstatic, kind of, you know, excitable kind of experience, but rather, by joy, he means a deep down satisfaction. You have a sense of rightness in the journey of your life, connected to the Almighty. But in order to have this fellowship, which brings about this joy, you must agree with what God says about Himself and what Jesus says about Himself. And so it means believing that the Christ of eternity came in the flesh. Verse 2, some wanted to be called Christian, but they wanted to find some other explanation for Jesus. They wanted to explain Him away and not really imagine or believe that this was God in the flesh come to die in our place to find forgiveness for us so that all who believe could be saved. We must believe that God the Son came and that Jesus is who He said He is. And when we believe that, we find fellowship with God and in that fellowship we can find joy. That's John's prologue. And then as he moves on in verse 5 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 14, he begins to explain some principles about God that we must understand as we believe in Him. First, verse 5, God is light. He says, this is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. God is pure light, and light exposes the truth. Light helps you avoid dangers. Light brings clarity to your understanding. Light shows you the way so that you are safe on the journey. God is light. He's not saying, understand, God is the lamp. He's not saying in our culture, God is the bulb. He's saying God is the light itself, and in Him there is no darkness. He eradicates darkness There are no shadows. There is nothing hidden. There is no falsehood in God. In the dark, you can't tell the difference between what is false and what is true. In the dark, you can't tell the difference between what is cheap and what is valuable. If I was in the dark, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference if I had a handful of diamonds or a handful of gravel. But when you turn the light on, you see the value of things. And God is that light who establishes the true value. And he gives us an understanding of what is true. Because for the rest of the first chapter, John begins to describe the lies that Satan would tell us that the light would expose. Three lies in particular. Lie number one is in verse 6. 
And the lie is that sin is no big deal in your life. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. See, that claim, that lie is embedded in the pre-Gnostic thought that John is facing. The reasoning went this way. The reasoning went, you know, your body is really not you. After all, fleshly things don't matter. Spiritual things matter. So who you really are is who you are on the inside. Who you really are is the spiritual part of you. Your body is just a blanket, so to speak, that kind of covers up the real you. So it doesn't really matter what you do with your body. It will not affect the real you, the spiritual part of you. And John is saying, no, God loves all of you. God cares for every part of you. And if you believe this lie, begin to kind of slice things that thin, you are trusting in a falsehood. Sin is a big deal. The sin you do with your body affects your soul. But there's a second lie. It's in verse 8. And that is, deep down, we're all basically good. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Once again, here's the, the thinking, and that is we, the Gnostics, or in that case the pre-Gnostics, we can follow our instincts. Why? Because we have a greater knowledge. Because we have a new insight. Because we've been somehow enlightened around the way things really are. Therefore, we can trust our instincts and anything that comes naturally to us is going to be okay. And today, that pops up again in our pop culture and pop culture thinking that says if something can be assigned to our heredity, heredity, if something can be assigned to our genes, if something can be assigned to our circumstances, well then it's morally acceptable. It comes instinctively. It must be okay. John is saying if you believe that, you are self-deceived because we are all prone to sin. And the way to deal with sin is not to relabel it and call it something that it's not, but the way to deal with sin is to confess it, repent of it, and put it at the foot of the cross. And when you do that, what you will find is that God is true to Himself. You will find forgiveness, and you will find mercy. But that leads us to the third lie, and that is, well, all of this doesn't affect me. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. He can envision the reasoning that says, well, okay, maybe there is a thing called sin, and maybe some people are sinners, and maybe that's a problem for them. But it's not a problem for me. I mean, I'm not that bad. As I compare to others around me, I'm not as bad as this guy, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. And the things that I do, well, maybe they're mistakes, or maybe every once in a while I slip up, or maybe once in a while I, I make something, make poor judgment about something, but it certainly isn't sin, after all. And John says, you make God out to be a liar if you rationalize away your own sinful behavior. But in the midst of that, as if to avoid discouragement, because so far this argument is a little discouraging, he says, but remember, God as light is not just a huge spotlight of judgment on your life. God as light is also the warm light of forgiveness. Look at verse 9. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You are invited to live in the light. Living in the light starts with confession. Living in the light begins by understanding things the way God sees them. By seeing things the way God sees them. By saying the same thing about your sin as God says about your sin. That's what confession means. And when you understand what God says about our sin, that is, it is spiritual cancer and it's killing me if I don't deal with it. When you understand that, you can begin to walk in the light and he will, you will find forgiveness forever. And as we begin chapter 2 of 1 John, he outlines some of the truths that we know about this God and our fellowship with Him. In chapter 2, verse 1, he wants us to know that you have an advocate before the Father. You have one who is on your side pleading your case, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, he wants you to know that you can have assurance that you know Him as you come to Him for salvation. He says you can know that you are in Him. In fact, over and over again in this short letter, he talks about you can know, you can be sure, you can have assurance of your salvation. And how does that assurance come? It doesn't come because now that I'm perfect. It comes because now I'm in progress. And now I am growing and moving along with my Savior, the walk of faith. But as he rejoices in what we have in this in this uh, fellowship with God, in the middle of chapter 2, he begins to warn us of some things that are threats to our fellowship. Let's read together chapter 2, verse 15. Here's a threat to your fellowship. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Loving the world is a threat to your fellowship. The world is the system of rebellion that Satan runs for a temporary period of time right now. That's what John means when he says the world. He's not talking about the planet. He's talking about the system of life. The system that is trapping us in lives that we're never meant to live. A life outside of the fellowship with God. A life in rebellion against the principles of His truth. John says, listen, you have to make a choice on what you love. And there is no middle ground. Do not choose to love the world, but choose to love God. It means that the comfortable quasi-Christian who, who wants to be seen as a respectable person but certainly doesn't want to get all excited about the things of God lest people look at him funny, that's hypocrisy. It means the so-called Christian who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church, who parties like mad on Saturday night, drags his bones into church on Sunday morning to make his mother happy or his wife happy. That is hypocrisy. It means that the materialist Christian who is only walking this walk of faith so that life is going to be easy and I'm going to get what I want, that too is game-playing. John is saying there is no room to play games with God. You have to choose to love God more than you love the world, more than you love the system. And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You have to understand that the love of God is the most supremely important choice that you're ever going to make because this is absolutely vital. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if true, it is of infinite importance. The one thing that it cannot be is moderately important. Oh, we have to get that. 
If you're thinking, okay, well, you know, I like Jesus. He's good. He's kind of, I'm, I'm a member of the church. I participate in church, among other things. And all these things are absolutely equal in my life. None of them is really above the other. And Jesus is one of the mix. That simply doesn't work. Because if you are moderately connected to Christ, you are really in love with the world. But He is of supreme importance, and He must be. When we understand what we have in Him, He becomes the strength of our life, our Lord and our Savior and our Master. So don't be threatened. Don't give in to the love of the world. Secondly, He says, another threat to your fellowship is not understanding what time it is. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. John is saying, you need to recognize that God is not going to wait forever, that the clock is ticking, that time is linear. You need to recognize that things are moving on, and how we know that we're moving towards the end is that opposition is increasing. What he's saying is, you need to feel urgent about who you are and what you have in Jesus. You need to be feel, feel urgent about yourself and feel urgent about the people around you. And without it, there's a threat to your fellowship. As you go into chapter 3, John begins to outline some tests, or if you will, some questions we could ask ourselves as to, well, am I where I need to be in this relationship with God? And the first question, he says, is, how do you relate to God? Do you relate to God as a child of the king? He's your father and you are his child. And if so, do you demonstrate the traits of the family of God? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. He says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John is saying that, that in this family, this family of faith, there are family traits. There are, there are things about the family that help us to know that we are truly a, a child of the Father. And one of those family traits is that there will be people who just don't get us. Another of those family traits is that we positively change in our behavior so that things are different about us. Look at verse 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. Part of the family traits is you begin to change to be more and more like God. When he says you do not go on sin sinning, he doesn't mean that if you sin, it means you're not a believer. It means that sin is no longer what identifies you. It means sin is no longer what you are known for. It used to be that you were known by your sin. It used to be you were identified by your sin. You may have scars on your body which talk about the time when you were identified by your sin or tattoos on your body which tell the story of days where you were identified by your sin. John wants you to know that in the eyes of God, those things are fading as you grow in your new life in Christ. Because you're no longer identified by that, but you're identified by... The family traits. And what are the family traits? Verse 17 says the family traits are mercy and generosity. 
Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says the family traits are being able to test the spirits, to listen to those teachers out there and to identify through your growing knowledge of the Word of God that this doesn't seem right and that seems right. One of the family traits is this. God is not a fool and his family is not easily bamboozled. One of the family traits, he said, is growing in love. Look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another. For love comes from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. One of the family traits is you're growing in love. Now, all around us, people know that verse. All around us, the culture picks that verse out of the Bible, at least the last phrase of it, God is love. And what they do to that phrase is they turn it on its head, make it to mean something it never meant. And the reasoning goes like this. Since God is love, it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter where I go. It doesn't matter what I say. Since God is love, I know that, that everything is going to be forgiven. Everything is going to be okay. Since God is love, you can make any choice you want, believe anything you want, and everything will be fine. And that's to turn the whole meaning of this upside down. You're not saying God is love. You're saying love is God, but it doesn't say love is God. One of the traits of being in the family of faith is that you take on the characteristics of the Father and that trait is love. It doesn't mean there are no consequences to bad behavior. God is love, so you grow in the family characteristic of love as well and grow in courage. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The logic is this, since I know God loves me, I am safe. I am protected. Since I know God loves me and He's with me, I, I can face the fearful things of life knowing that there is a power who is greater than anything I will face, and He's on my side. And all of this is because He loved me first. Look at verse 19. If we love, we love because we first, He first loved us. From time to time, you will hear me explain the Christian life this way. This is a journey of loving God back. This is where I get that phrase. You're called to love God back. He started it. He initiated it. He loved you first. Now, believer, love God back. And now as we enter chapter 5, the last section of uh, John's letter, he actually does a recap for us. He, he not, doesn't necessarily trust that we're remembering everything that he taught and he reviews a little bit. I don't know how good your memory is, right? My memory's not all that good. Uh, I heard a story about two senior citizen ladies. They went out to lunch and they were talking for a while, sharing a meal. And then one of the ladies looked across the table and she said, you know, it's terrible how bad my memory is. I'm so sorry. I know we've known each other for years, we've had a great time here, and I count you as a good friend, but in this moment, right here, right now, I just can't remember your name. Would you tell me your name? And the lady on the other side of the table paused and said, do you need to know it right now? <laughs> Sometimes we forget important stuff, and so John is going to remind us of some important stuff 
The recap of chapter 5 goes this way. I'm going to go quickly through it. Recap number 1. The most basic idea that you have to cling to in order to be a believer is that Jesus Christ is who He said He is. God come in the flesh. That's verse 1. Recap number 2. You demonstrate that you know Him by living according to His direction. That's verse 3. Recap number 3. When you live for God, you will be different than the world around you. That's recap number 3 in found in verse 4. Recap number 4. True faith helps you live for God. That's found in verse 5. Recap number 5. You can be sure, believer, that you are saved forever. That's in verse 13. You can know you have eternal life. And all of this gives you assurance of answered prayer. Look at chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that He hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. When you ask in the will of God, He always responds with yes. And I heard one man say, every prayer rightly prayed is always a variation of this one prayer. God, Thy will be done. Look to Him, for He has a will for your life. And finally, at the end of the book, he says, Dear children, verse 21, keep yourselves from idols. Some of your Bibles say, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Everything that is less, everything that is false, everything that is tarnished by sin, everything that you put in a higher place than the place of God in your life, that you care about more, that you prioritize more, all of that, is idolatry. He says, flee idolatry. And when you flee, run into the arms of the Savior. And what you will find is a love that will not let you go. Flee idolatry and find fellowship and joy in Him. That's the invitation. Lord, my thoughts go back to that song about the prodigal. And John has traced the journey of how we can go from being the prodigal to one who experiences godly fellowship and godly joy. And deep down we know that's just what we need. Forgive us for the times we settle for lesser things. And Lord, help us to concentrate on that which is greater. We look to You. We cling to You. We run to You. And in the week ahead, we pray that we might represent You. And through our lives and our words, our choices and our deeds, will the people around us, Lord, help them to see Jesus. We want that to be true of us. We pray all of this in your strong name. Amen.